This morning we are going to be in the book of James, chapter 1, and this will be the fifth and final sermon from chapter 1, Lord willing, if I get through the these eight verses. Uh, following um, our, our time in the Word this morning, we will have a baptism, so I would love you guys to hang around and celebrate uh, baptism uh, with Randy this morning. So our text is James 1, we'll be in verses 19 through 27. Uh, again, our time will be spent in this text, we'll make uh, some connections to some parallel passages from the Sermon on the Mount, but we'll be driven um, from the aim of James in this letter. We'll read the text, then we'll dig into the scriptures and make some applications, uh, but first, let us pray. Father God, with humble hearts, we come to hear you speak to us through your infallible scriptures. We ask, Lord, that the word would illuminate our minds, that it would inflame our hearts, and that by your spirit you would engage our will. We are dependent upon grace this morning to receive the word, to believe the word, and to do the word. We ask, Lord, that you have your way in us this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. So James chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV version, so if you have a different version, don't worry about it. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the infallible, inerrant, perfect Word of God. Amen. Amen. So, this morning as we look at this, I, would, I titled this uh, message this morning in Word and indeed. So everything that the Christian is becoming, as we talked about earlier, is a respondent to what God in Christ Jesus has accomplished for them in his death and his resurrection. In our previous studies of James, we have seen this. In verses 1 through 12, we saw the Christian response to trials. Then we saw uh, last week, the Christian response to temptation. And as we see these tests and temptations and this next te uh, text, we're looking at the Christian response to the word of truth. So we saw first, right, what is the genuine faith? Remember, that is what James is aiming at, is those who have a genuine faith. This is how those with genuine faith respond to trials. Those with genuine faith 
respond in temptation, with temptation. Uh, this is how they respond. And here he's saying, those with genuine faith, this is how the genuine in faith respond to the word of truth. So we'll see this morning that the genuine Christian is the man or woman who has received the word of God with meekness. Remember that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Those who have received the word of God long to see God, don't they? And then as they long to see God, as we long to see God, those who have genuinely been transformed by the word of God, we long to see God. We long to be in his presence. Then the word of God then continues to uh, purify the intentions of the believer's heart so that the believer begins to live in a brand new way. Again, from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The converted in Christ have received the word of God by grace. Then through the faith that has been deposited to them by their God, their life is then characterized by a change of heart that has led them to a change of direction. It is a life marked by a response to the gospel. It is, most simply, it is a life that is marked by repentance and faith. Notice that everything in the gospel, as I, as I have explained it many times, the gospel has four basic sort of components or uh, things that we think, think it through in categories, right? That it is God, man, Christ, and response. God is holy and the righteous judge and the perfect creator. Man is separated from God by sin. Christ and His atoning death reconciles sinners to God. And then finally, man's response. The response is repentance and faith. Turning from ourselves and our sin and turning to Him, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. It is simply a life marked by repentance and faith. This is the soul of a man or a woman or a child who has been converted to Christ by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, according to the will of the Father. So, I'm asking you this morning to ponder this. Is this and has this been your response to the Word of God? Has this been your response to the gospel? I'm going to take a noticeable turn and talk just a moment about preaching, and then we'll get further into this. But in many American churches today, the preaching of the word of truth is noticeably lacking. It's noticeably lacking because the pulpit is often relegated to uh, secondary importance. It is second to entertaining, self-stylized singing often. Preaching is secondary sometimes to the personality of the preacher. The word of truth is avoided because the preacher longs to be liked more than he longs to be faithful to the text of the Scriptures. As a result, the preacher does not preach for conversions to Christ. What does he preach for? He preaches to fill pews and to fill the bank account. But true gospel preaching has at its aim a desire to illuminate the mind, to inflame the heart, and to affect the will. 
Now the preacher knows that he has no power in himself to do that. He is one who wants to just rightly divide the word of truth and trust the Holy Spirit of God to do that work, to enlighten the mind and to inflame the heart and then to affect the will. The will. But see, gospel preaching says this. This is what you know as a Christian, and this is what you ought to know. This is what you know, or it is at least what you should know. Gospel preaching convicts the heart of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Gospel preaching inflames the heart in love for God, and especially in love for His Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel preaching says, you have been changed by the gospel, Live like it. It says, since you know this, that you have been changed by the gospel, then live like it. Gospel preaching says that contrary to what the world says, behavior matters. How we behave matters. Remember last week I talked about how behavior reflects the heart of the person, whether or not they truly love God. Because as we saw in our text last week, that the promises of God belong to whom? They belong to those who love God. And behavior indicates where your loves are. What you have prioritized in your life indicates what you really love. Behavior matters. The effect of the Word of God preached for the chosen of God is that this is indeed the Word of God. That's the first sign of genuine faith. That when the Scripture is read, the born-again, blood-bought believer in Christ, the one whom Jeremiah said has had the law of God written upon his heart, hears the Word of God preached, pronounced, read out loud, and they go, that is indeed the Holy Word of God. It's not just a book. The believer knows that this is the Word of God. And for us who do believe, it is to be received, it is to be believed, and it is to be lived. It is the Word of God that has been implanted on the soul of the elect of God. So I'm asking you this again this morning. Another thing to contemplate as you leave here today is what is the effect of the preached Word of God having currently in your life? How is the Word of God affecting you? Has it enlightened and illuminated your mind? Has it inflamed your heart? Has it affected your will? Has it moved you to behave in a way that is pleasing to God? Then indeed you have received the Word of God. You have received it. It has been implanted by God in you. It is the Word of God received. Behavior matters, you see. What you think, what you say, and what you do reflects who you are becoming in Christ Jesus. And gospel preaching is aimed at conversion. Gospel preaching trusts the authority of Scripture. Trusts that by the power of the Holy Spirit that the mind can be convinced, that the heart can be convicted, and that the will can be moved to obedience. This is what the preacher trusts if he trusts the Scripture as he is delivering it according to what it says. This is the aim of James' sermon for us this morning. These are not just Jeff's words. These, this is the aim of James' sermon this morning. 
So I want to look now at the infallible, life-changing Word of God in a more exegetical, more precise, more dividing it sort of way. So let us look at 19 and 20 more closely. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So the first thing we note is that the believer is a humble-hearted person. He says, know this. Know this. Your behavior will either prove or disprove if you have indeed been brought forth by the word of truth. Remember last week in verse 18 when he says that it was of God's own will that he brought us forth by the word of truth. So James follows that verse with this verse. Know this, as if to say, knowing this, knowing that you have been brought forth by the word of truth, brothers. So he's speaking to believers, right? He's saying every person needs to be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Your behavior, your actions will either accuse you or it will acquit you. Your words will display or betray your confession. You might confess Jesus with one mouth and confess something else on the other side of it. He'll get to that later in later chapters. But here he's just setting the stage for this idea of Behavior is tied both in word and in deed. The person is transformed by the word of God. The one who speaks quickly often speaks from a prideful heart, don't they? The one who speaks too quickly without having all the information. They think they know everything. The prideful heart speaks really quick. Always has an answer. I don't know about you, but I've been guilty of this, of speaking way too soon. That I ought to just shut up and listen. And I spoke too soon and betrayed my own heart. Betrayed the sinfulness of my own heart. The angry person is a self-righteous person. Anger is not a reflection of God's righteousness that has been imputed to you by grace. It's not a righteousness that reflects God's standard. But somehow, it is a righteousness that reflects a standard you've set up for yourself. Anger reflects the prideful human heart. To know this, know this, brothers, know this, lovers of God. He who the Scriptures say is a righteous judge is angry with the wicked every day. He who is angry with the wicked every day chose this to love you. Angry with the sinful all day. But to you, He chose to love. He chose to love you. By His own will, He drew you out of the world and He brought you unto salvation by the word of truth. It was not His wrath against the sin that you committed that you so deserved His wrath that brought you to salvation, was it? It wasn't the sin that you deserved to be punished for that led you to repentance. It was in His righteous Mercy and His righteous grace and love for you and for me, a sinner, it led us to repentance and faith by and in the word of truth. Now Jesus taught exactly that angry words were equal to what? Murder. Jesus said angry words are equal to murder. 
In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But Jesus takes it further. My standard of righteousness is this, Jesus says. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. These are the words from he who fulfilled the law of God and expresses to us more than a mere adherence to the law, the standard that the Christian is to live by is according to the heart of the law. Not the letter, necessarily just to the letter of the law, but to the heart of the law. Jesus gets to the heart of the law that, that we obey from the very heart. The believer belie- obeys from the heart, from a transformed heart that would confirm that indeed of his own will, we were brought forth by the word of truth. A heart that has been transformed by God's word, by his grace, and through the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Know this, brothers and sisters, the righteousness produced in you was just what James said in verse 18, wrought in you by the will of God because of grace, according to the word of truth that has been revealed to you. So be slow to speak your own words. They tend to betray the condition of your heart. You can stand there and appear righteous and and prideful. You can stand there and appear to be self-righteous. You can stand there and appear to be a prideful person. Or you can open your mouth and remove all doubt. You can. You can stand there and just appear to be self-righteous and prideful. Or you can open your mouth too quickly and no one will doubt that you're a self-righteous and prideful person. Know this, that God opposes the proud, boastful person. He opposes the person who is betrayed by their own words, but He gives grace to the humble. The born-again believer is humble-hearted, self-controlled, quick to listen, not given to fits of rage. Proverbs 29.20 says, Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than him. My grandmother... Ella McInnes had this little sign above her phone. And she, in this old farmhouse she had, she had the phone was still so old that it had the, you know, you take the little thing off and you got it right here and it's got the speaker right there. She still had this old phone in her kitchen. And right above the kitchen, I remember this as a, as a small child reading this little sign. And it was a saying that she said often as well when I spoke too much when I got too far out of my element and spoke of things I should not be speaking about as a young child, she would say this, and the sign read this, God intended you to listen more than you speak, or He would have given you two mouths and only one ear. Those words are true, aren't they? The person who has received the gracious Word of God responds to the Word of God with a gracious heart and from a gracious heart. Colossians 4, 6 tells us about our words. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Because it was the kindness of the Lord when you received the word of truth that led to your own repentance and brought about a righteousness that did not belong to you. It was not your own, but it was brought to you by grace and truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the converted man or the converted woman 
will not bring about the righteousness of God in another person without words of truth that have the savor and the seasoning of God's grace. So, he moves forward and he says, Therefore, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Therefore, every time you see therefore in the Bible, ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? It is therefore, since you have received the word of truth in a saving way, by the will of God, since you have put on the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, put to death any leftover sinful inclinations. That's what he's saying here. Remember last, last week we saw that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart, right? James here is saying that the unrestrained heart is filthy and wicked. The unconverted person's heart has unrestrained malice. But not so for you. Not so for you, brothers and sisters. Not so for you, the converted. Test whether or not you be in the faith. Whether or not you have receive the word of truth and plant it in your heart. One of the tests here is, are you actively putting away any leftover sin that is in your heart? Are you continuing to receive the word of God with meekness and with humility? If you receive the word of truth that is able to save your soul, then you are steadfastly putting on Christ and putting off sinful inclinations of your heart. John Owen a great Puritan uh, said, and I'm paraphrasing this, that the converted in Christ should be actively killing sin in their life, knowing that sin that remains is killing them. That any sin that remains is killing you, especially if you leave it unrestrained. There's a Latin phrase, simul justice et peccator. Now, I only do that because... Uh, it says something. It was, a, it was a phrase that was used a lot in, um, in those early times. And it means this, that we are simultaneously justified while having still remaining sin in our hearts. And the Apostle John says that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, that sin is lawlessness. And he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. What is the seed that abides in us? The word of God. The word of truth concerning his son Jesus abides in our heart. And if that be true, no one makes a practice of sinning. But if a person says they have no sin, the word says they are a liar. The person who has received the word of truth by faith humbly recognizes that the heart of the human problem is a problem of the human heart. And that person who recognizes that then begins to get engaged in the battle of removing and overcoming leftover lawlessness that is in their own heart. In other words, I am justified by faith, but I am working out my salvation with fear and trembling. It's two sides of one coin. You know? Because what is often preached in churches these days is that behavior doesn't matter. You confess Jesus as the Lord and you're good to go. 
You've one time walked down an aisle uh, in a response to the gospel. You're good to go. Just stay home. Go fishing on Sunday. Whatever it is that you do. And it just is horrible and untrue and unhelpful. The born-again person knows this, that they are justified by faith, but they are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, asking themselves often, is my life lined up with one who had received the Word of God, or is it not? I still, after this many years, sometimes will stand in the mirror when I've really messed up and stand there and go, are you really in Christ, brother? Are you really? Think about your attitude and your mouth. Are you really? And I get my assurances from the Scripture, though, that the God who saved me is taking me all the way. Right? That He's taking me all the way. But I want to work this out with fear and trembling that I, that I have not received this Word of God in vain. I learn a lot every week by people's answers to this question. And I ask this question a lot. How might I pray for you? Some will answer with asking for prayer for circumstances or relationships, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But there are others who answer with this, I desire to be more faithful. I desire to trust the Lord more. I desire to grow in my love of God. These are prayer requests that comfort the pastor's heart. Not that you're struggling with these spiritual things, but there are things that just comfort my heart because it says this person has received the word of truth and they are working their salvation out with fear and trembling. It is proof that the humble-hearted person has received the word of truth, the word of God, and it has been implanted in their heart. This is what the Christian does as he works out their salvation with fear and trembling. The implanted word, the gospel message that has taken root in the believer's heart is that which saves the soul. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God concerning his Christ. I'm going to ask you this this morning. Do you believe that the gospel saves? Do you believe that it is the only way to salvation? Then, if we believe that the gospel saves and it is the only way to salvation, do we speak forth the words of life to our friends and our neighbors? Do we listen intently to them that we might find an opportunity to speak the word of truth? That we might find an opportunity to speak the gospel of salvation to them? Or are we quick to offer advice, help? Are we quicker to do that and speak our own words? Or do we pause long enough to listen? This is a soul who needs Jesus. And I have the words of life. I have the gospel of Jesus Christ to share with them. We should speak forth the words of life. We should listen intently. Be slow to speak that our words would reflect the gracious gospel that is able to save. I don't have words to save anyone. I've never had them. I have never had them. 
I get, I get particularly humbled every Lord's Day as I stand here and open up God's Word. And I think about the things that I've prayed about. I think about the people that are here that I've prayed for. There are people that I long to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I stand here humbled every Lord's Day that you have nothing to offer in your own words. You have the Scriptures. It is the Gospel that saves, not you, Jeff. Humble yourself and get out of the way. And I know, and forgive me, Lord, that I often get in the way. Let's look at verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away, and at once he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Not only do your words display and reflect the condition of your heart, that is, that your words show whether you have received the saving gospel, but so do our actions. We remember from last week that love is a verb. It is more than a feeling. But loving God from the heart is revealed in the priorities of our acts. Those who receive the word of truth respond with words of truth received by grace. And guess what we are to do? Here's the ultimate aim. Our words and our actions are to reflect the image of God in the person of Jesus Christ who saved us. Is the Word of God transforming us into more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ who saved us? Do not let your heart deceive you, brothers and sisters, because behavior does matter. The Word of God implanted transforms the human heart and it is freeing. It frees the believer to reflect the image of God, both in word and in deed. Notice what James' words, what he uses here, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the perfect law of liberty. The word of Christ has set you free. Free for what purpose though? Free to image Him. Free to display Him. Free to proclaim the gospel both in Word and indeed, you've been freed to do that. If you are not in Christ, you cannot do that. You have not been set free from your chains and your bondage. You have to be set free first by the one who kept the perfect law of God perfectly. And the law of liberty then sets us free to reflect the image of God, both in word and in deed. James here describes the person who hears the word of God and is unchanged by it. They're a reflection. They still look in the mirror and they find a reflection. Not of the word received and believed. It may have affected their mind, but there is no reflection of Christ from the heart. The will has not been transformed. That person should not suppose that they are saved if they are a hearer and not a doer only. If they are a hearer only and not a doer, they should not suppose that they are indeed in Christ. Because the Word of God has the effect. It has the power to illuminate the mind, inflame the heart, and engage the will. 
If the will has not been engaged, ask yourself, am I in the faith? That is, what, that is what James is asking all along as he writes this letter. Test whether your faith be genuine. Test it. When trials come, how do you respond? When temptations come, how do you respond? When you receive the word of truth, how do you respond? Does your mouth betray you? Do your actions confirm what has gone on in you inter internally? And I'm not saying that you go out there and you behave so you get, because that's not the way it is at all. You can see that this is flipped on its ear. It's because you have received the Word of God and planted into your heart, it has affected your will to do. And you do so for the glory of God to reflect the perfect image of Jesus Christ and not your own. The genuine Christian who has the Word of God implanted in their soul in a saving way is freed by the Word of God and they've received it willingly. To willingly put the Word of God then into action. They've been made willing. Do you get that? Made willing. We are made willing. We don't will ourselves into anything. Lest you then would have a reason to boast, would you not? And James told us a couple of weeks ago that there's no human boasting. There's no reason to boast. It is God who has made you willing to act because you've been brought forth by the word of truth. I know I'm beating this point to death, but I want to because uh, I think it is important to know that the word of truth, having been really received and really implanted into our hearts, affects or ought to affect what we do. And I think that's why he begins this section of this letter, know this. You know this, brothers. You know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. All of you in here know this to be true. That if the Word of God has been really implanted in your heart, it will move you to action. It will have illuminated your mind. It will have inflamed your heart in love towards God and in love towards God's people. And it will move you to live like it. See, these... Those who have been transformed by the Word of God, these are the image bearers of God. These are those who have looked into the perfect law of liberty and been set free, and they are a reflection of the fulfillment of God's law in Jesus Christ from the heart. If you say that you're in Christ and you hear the words of Christ and the will is not affected to do the words of Christ, then your proclamation is really in vain. Your words really have no weight to them. And then he says, blessed, happy is the one who receives the words of life and is moved to act according to what they hear. So I would ask you again, another question this morning to ponder is, have you responded to the words of Christ both in word and in deed? Now, I'm not saying, have you done that perfectly? Because there's not one of us who will stand up and say that I have perfectly walked in the word of truth, both in word and in deed. But is that marking the trajectory of your life? That that is the aim of your life? Is, is the word of God has been received into my heart and implanted into me, and I long further to do better in both word and in deed. This is the test of the genuineness of your faith. 26 through 27, he says, 
If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I want to pause to ask us this question. When you hear the word religion, does it just get you all uptight? I know lots of Christians who it does, and I was and am oftentimes one of them. Gets me uptight. Because the Latin for the word religion means this, to be bound by obligation. That gets us uptight. Doesn't it? To hear the word religion, I've got to practice my religion. I'm bound by obligation. It really can get us uptight. What then does it mean to be religious? It means to be an adherent to the obligations of faith in a binding way. Well, that's not so bad. That's not so bad if you think about it that way. To be religious is to be an adherent to the obligations of your faith in a binding way. That's not so bad if you can think about it in the context of Christ has bound, him to, bound us to himself and we practice there. But what does James mean when he says this? If anyone thinks he is religious. In one sense he means, if anyone thinks he's a faithful adherent to the Christian faith and he does not bridle his tongue, his outward adherence is deceiving him into thinking he's something he's not. It's really what he's saying here. If one thinks that they're religious and they cannot bridle their tongue, then his outward adherence is deceiving him into thinking that he's something that he really is not. What James is driving at more pointedly, though, is, is here, the word religious is from the Greek word uh, threskos, and it is the, the, the idea of piety, of Worship of holiness. The person who thinks he's holy and he's spiritual and set aside for worship, if he does not bridle his tongue, his outward worship is in vain. It's worthless, he says. If any of you claim to be holy and you claim to be set apart unto God, if you claim, claim to be a spirit-filled worshiper of God and you cannot bridle your tongue, your outward piousness, your Worship then is in vain, he says. This is similar to what Jesus said of the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, isn't it? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are all like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. I mean, that's what James is really pointing at here. If any of you thinks he's religious, if any of you thinks you're godly, well, he goes on to explain here that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pure, outward godliness, James says, is more than faithful adherence, although it is not less than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. But to those who are lovers of God from the heart, pure godliness is to love the most vulnerable and to seek God's justice in the world while separating themselves from worldly things. They strive to live in the world while not being stained by the sins of the world. 
their behavior is consistently different than the world. The words that fly out of their mouth are consistently different than the words that fly out of the mouths of the people in the world, right? They're slow to speak. And the words that they do speak are seasoned with grace. Remember what I said back some time ago when we were in Nehemiah about the Word of God is what draws God's people to God, right? As Nehemiah was delivering the law, as, as Ezra was de- delivering the law to the people, it was the people drawn by and wanted to be near where the Word of God was spoken that drew them together to assemble on that day. And they assembled because the Word of God was spoken. God's people know that where the Word of God is speaking, God is present, right? So they were drawn there. But what I also noticed as we were studying Nehemiah too, is that that behavior there mattered as well. Justice, the justice of God, mattered to those who were transformed by the Word of God. Because you see, as, as people uh, are transformed by the Word of God, they love God, but they love the things God loves. They abhor the things God abhors. Right? They are brokenhearted for the things that break God's heart. So he says, if you want your religion to be pure and undefiled, he uses the example of visiting the fatherless and the widows. The vulnerable are who God cares about. And you know, I praise God that He does care about the vulnerable. Because if He didn't care about the vulnerable and the weak and the sinful and the depraved, I wouldn't be here. If He didn't care about the weak of the world, the ones that are despised, if He didn't care about those, I wouldn't be standing here today. He cares about the weak and the foolish and the sinful. God hates sin, but you know what is so cool? God loves sinners. I, that is an amazing thing. It is. It's, it, it's almost mind-blowing, isn't it? If you think about it, that, that God who is perfect and holy and right and true and cannot be in the presence of sin and He hates it and He's angry all day long with wickedness, yet He says, I love sinners. I love them. I love sinners so much I sent my Son to be sinless for them. So that by His death and by His resurrection, they might have new life in Him. And I brought them forth by the word of truth. They received the word and believed that it was all by grace and all through faith and all in Christ's doing and all to God's glory. Amen? Amen. So let's just take a moment of silence and allow the word of God to penetrate our hearts, our minds, and our will. Father God, I praise and thank you for your word. I praise and thank you for the word made flesh that dwelt among us. I thank you that you have brought us forth by your word. That it is not a work of us done by any works of us done in in righteousness. It is by the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word that you have drawn us to yourself. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for your word. I thank you for each one who gathered here today. And I pray, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be moving in us. 
in a saving way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.